Well, good morning to all of you. Good to, good to welcome you all to church this morning. Uh, a little bit of a different service this morning. Uh, we um, have a number of our people missing for various reasons, and all good reasons, just uh, not able to be here. So we're without a pianist. Uh, Chris and Bonnie have, uh, as I said in the email, taken an opportunity to go see Bonnie's dad. I don't know if they've been to see him since, since Bonnie's mom passed away, so... Um, it's a good opportunity for them, uh, but when you're down to one penis in a church, that leaves us with no music this morning, except me. <laughs> so you'll have to put up with me and my guitar. It's going to be country music morning. <laughs> I just don't want to see any uh, line dancing breakout or anything like that. So. Okay, I didn't give the song people a hymn, so sorry about that, Curtis. <laughs> First one is To God Be the Glory. It's number 66, but you have hymn books in front of you. Uh, you can turn there in your hymn books. So if Curtis gets on it, he can put the words up on the screen as well. But um, to God be the glory, great things he has done. Uh, we'll stand and we'll sing this together. Just a great song of worship to get our hearts kind of in tune with how great a God we are and how great a God we're worshiping. Glory, great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life and atonement for sin, and opened the life gates that all may go in. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, let the earth hear him. Father, through Jesus. 
Thanks. You may be seated. I thought uh, I thought maybe when Pastor Glenn came up with his guitar, he was going to introduce himself as "Hello, I'm Johnny Cash." <laughs> I've heard he's done that before. <laughs> anyway, uh, anyway, it's just great to uh, to be here this morning. Uh, I noticed there's something a little different out front. Well, I didn't notice. My wife noticed. I didn't notice until she said something, but. It's a little sunnier here on this side of the church with that big tree being gone, so looks different, but I think it's an improvement. <clears throat> anyway, it's just great to see you all here this morning. I see some new faces as well. That's great to see. And uh, we know there's a few missing as well, so we just hope they're, uh, a couple, couple of the guys are off fishing and stuff, so they're coming back today, so we'll hope for a safe return for them. But uh, yeah, it's just good to see you all here again. Unfortunately, we're stuck with these things again, but... I guess if that's the worst that happens, then we can live with that. But anyway, we'll just bow for prayer this morning and uh, ask God for his blessings. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this, uh, this beautiful, sunny fall morning. Uh, we thank you for the, for the bit of rain last night that we received. And we just thank you for your continued provision and your blessings, Lord. And we thank you that we can gather here freely this morning to, uh, to worship and to praise you. And so we just want to hand this service over to you this morning, be it to your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Penny, we'll be reading the scripture. Good morning. Okay. <laughs> great is the Lord, and highly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. <clears throat> Alright, so this morning I'm going to read Second Thessalonians 1, verses 1 to 12. To the Church of the Thess Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought, we ought always to, be, to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love, of, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief and give relief to you who are troubled. 
and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with the powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled, in, or marveled at among all those who have believed, this includes you, because you believe, believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may, may make you worthy of his calling, and by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Penny. Thanks, Jeremy, as well. So, I think I've only done this Johnny Cash thing once in my life, so somebody must have been talking. <laughs> so. I've been struck over the years in my reading and research that as Christians in North America today, we have a totally different view of persecution than Christians living in the first, say, a couple hundred years after Jesus uh, than they did. This difference really comes to light in this story. The author is unknown, but he relates a dream that he had that brings us out. This is how he relates that dream. I saw in a dream that I was in the celestial city, though when and how I got there I could not tell. I was one of a great multitude which no man could number from all countries and peoples and times and ages. Somehow I found that the saint who stood next to me had been in heaven for almost 2,000 years. Who are you? I asked him. He said, I was a Roman Christian. I lived in the days of the Apostle Paul. I was one of those who died in Nero's persecutions. I was covered with pitch and fastened to a stake and set on fire to light Nero's gardens. How awful, I exclaimed. And he said, oh no, I was glad to do something for Jesus. He died on the cross for me. The man on the other side then spoke. I've been, been in heaven only a few hundred years. I came from an island in the South Seas, Aromanga. John Williams, a missionary, came and told me about Jesus. And I too learned to love him. 
My fellow countrymen killed the missionary, and they caught and bound me. I was beaten until I fainted, and then they thought I was dead. But I revived, and so the next day they knocked me on the head, and they cooked me and ate me. How terrible, I said. The answer, no, I, I was glad to die as a Christian. You see, the missionaries had told me that Jesus was scourged and crowned with thorns for me. <coughs> and then they both turned to me and they said, what did you suffer for him? Or did you sell what you had for the money which sent men like John Williams to tell the heathen about Jesus? And I was speechless. And while they were both looking at me with sorrowful eyes, I awoke and realized that it was a dream. But I lay on my soft bed awake for hours, thinking of the money I had wasted on my own pleasures, my extra clothing, my costly car, and my many luxuries. And I realized I did not know what the words of Jesus meant when he said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And it's not uncommon at all to read the accounts of those early Christians and the persecution that they faced. And they viewed it as an honor that they were considered worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. We view it totally different. At the first sign of persecution, we focus our attention on how to put an end to the persecution because our rights are being violated. I'm not saying that it's necessarily wrong, but I'm just struck by how differently we view persecution than the Christians of the early days did. We're getting back to our series today through the books of First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, we started the series, you may remember, back in March. We finished First Thessalonians at the end of June, and then we took a break for the summer months while everyone was all over the place enjoying their summer. And now, for the most part, that we're... We're back to our regular routines, at least I thought we would be this Sunday, but I guess we're, we're still not. But, uh, but anyway, we're going to get back to the series, and today we're going to start this letter called Second Thessalonians. In some ways, it's a continuation of First Thessalonians. Uh, both were written by Paul, who was writing on behalf of himself and his co-workers, who were Silas and Timothy. The church these letters were addressed to in the, was a church that... Paul and Silas and Timothy had started in the Greek city of Thessalonica. Those who had responded to the gospel that Paul and his companions preached to them were perhaps not many, but they were a very committed, committed group of believers. And they were persecuted. Paul and his companions had to leave Thessalonica much earlier than they wanted to because of the persecutions. You can read the story back in Acts chapter 17. And after Paul and Silas and Timothy left, those new Christians in Thessalonica continued to face this persecution. And this was deeply concerning to Paul because he hadn't had the time to really ground them in their faith like he would have wanted to. And he wanted to go back, but he was never able to. And so that's the reason he wrote these letters. The first letter was, in 1 Thessalonians, I was just to express the deep joy that they had, that they were standing, these new believers in Thessalonica, were standing firm in their faith and to encouraging these new Christians just to keep on growing and maturing in their faith. And they also, because of some incomplete teaching, they had some misunderstandings about the return of Christ. So Paul in 1 Thessalonians corrects that misunderstanding. 
And you remember we looked at that there back in 1 Thessalonians 4, back in June. But Paul's teaching on Jesus' return seemed to lead to some greater confusion. And it wasn't even Paul's teaching. <laughs> it was a teaching from some individual or a group who had either written a letter to them and forged Paul's signature, or was telling them that Paul had said that the day of the Lord had already come. And so that was sending the people of this church into a bit of a confusion. And so Paul wrote a second letter then to this church to correct the false information and again give further teaching on Jesus' return. And that's this letter that we call 2 Thessalonians. Chapter 1 of this letter, which we are looking at this morning, is kind of introductory in nature. Paul again giving thanks to their... Uh, to these people for their strong faith in spite of the persecution and encourage them to go on. And what comes out of this first chapter speaks to gaining an understanding of how persecution fits in to our Christian lives. So let's look into it. As Christians, we need to come to an understanding of the persecutions and afflictions that are in our lives. And I think a study of the teachings that come out of this Chapter 2 Thessalonians 1 will help us in that. Three things that stood out to me as I studied this. Number one, three teachings. Number one, persecution and affliction go together with growth. Persecution and affliction go together with growth. Something struck me as I was studying this chapter. Paul expresses his thanks for this congregation because their faith was being greatly enlarged. Their faith was growing. Huge growth in their faith. And their love for each other was just kept on growing and growing as well. And Paul was impressed by that and expressed gratitude and thanks for that. And Paul went on to say they actually, Tim and Timothy and Silas, they actually brag about these Thessalonians to other churches. When they are with the other churches, they brag about the Thessalonians and their increasing faith and their increasing love, their perseverance and faith and love. They weren't giving up. They were continuing to grow. And all of this was happening in the midst of persecutions and afflictions that they were enduring, verse 4 tells us. And persecutions and afflictions had never stopped. It started the moment these people believed the gospel that Paul and his companions preached to them and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, and it never stopped. It came from the Jewish community in Thessalonica, it came from the city officials, and it came from the Greek society around them. And it continued on. It had never stopped. And in spite of that, and in the midst of that, this congregation was noted for their increasing faith and increasing love for each other. It's remarkable to me that Paul seems to put those two together in these verses. In the same sentence. Growing in faith and love, enduring persecution and affliction. Put together in the same sentence. How do these go together? I think we can confidently say from what we read in the rest of scripture, that persecutions and afflictions are often what it takes to cause our faith 
and our love to grow. A few weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 119, verse 65 to 72. And we saw that there. The psalmist admitted that before he was afflicted, there was a very lackadaisical attitude in him toward the things of God and toward walking according to the word of God. But after the affliction, he said, he kept God's word. And we can also think of a passage like James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. <clears throat> and we could go to several other scriptures, but teach the same thing. <clears throat> what we need to see here is that Persecution and affliction goes together with growth. We need one to have the other. Very often it takes persecutions and afflictions to cause our faith and love to grow. We, we, we seldom or very seldom will there be serious growth in our faith and love without persecutions and afflictions. They go together. That's the reason why God is usually not in a big hurry to remove persecutions and trials and afflictions from our lives. We pray that he will. That's our fervent prayer sometimes when we're under the heat. And we struggle why God, God doesn't do anything. And, and I've been there. I've struggled with that. God's usually not in a big hurry to do that. Those Trials, those afflictions, those persecutions, they're unpleasant, they're hurtful, they make life hard, they're stressful. But the vast majority of time, they are what is needed to cause the growth in our love and faith that is needed. And in God's eyes, that's more important. Now, we do have a role to play in this. Uh, how we respond to the persecutions and afflictions, that, and that matters. We can, in obedience to God, seek his face in the trials, dig deeper into his word, come and, and commit stronger to learning and growing. We can do that, and we will learn and grow. Or we can choose to quit, throw our faith away, become bitter, and walk away from God. We need to respond like these new believers here in Thessalonica did. Allow the persecutions and the afflictions to cause us to grow in our faith and to grow in our love for each other. The two go together. And knowing that helps us better understand persecution and afflictions in our lives. Second teaching I see here is our persecution and affliction will give opportunity for the justice of God to be revealed. I'll say that again. Our persecution and affliction will give opportunity for the justice of God to be revealed. I'm looking here at verses 5 through 10. I had to read it about five times before I kind of got what Paul was saying here. And I looked at some commentaries too. That also helped. But, but it's interesting that Paul makes a connection between the persecutions and the afflictions that the Thessalonians were going through and the Thessalonians' attitude toward them. And the justice of God. 
Two things are being said here. First, in verse 5, Paul is saying, the attitude in which the Thessalonians have toward their persecutions and afflictions, that attitude caused the growth of their faith and love. And that, he said, it's a plain indication of God's judgment that he considered them worthy of the kingdom of God. God is a righteous judge. I hope you're looking here at verse 5 as we're going through this. God's a righteous judge. These people had placed their faith in Jesus and his work on the cross on their behalf, Jesus' resurrection, that whole gospel message. They had placed their faith in Jesus. And because of that, God, the righteous judge, could regard the penalty of their sin to be paid for by Jesus. And they are now cleansed and holy. They are worthy now of the kingdom of God. And Paul is saying that because of their attitude toward their persecution and afflictions was one of allowing it to cause growth in their lives, that attitude proved that God's judgment was righteous and good and that they indeed were worthy of the kingdom of God. Not because of anything they had done, but because they accepted the gift of God on their behalf and were made holy and worthy. And that they had the attitude they did proved that. Proved that they accepted the gift and were cleansed and holy and worthy of the kingdom of God. If they would have had a different attitude, <laughs> that would have proved that it perhaps hadn't been genuine. But they did have that attitude. So that proved that God's judgment was right, that they were worthy of the kingdom of God because they had accepted the Lord. That's what verse 5 is saying. And then, still talking about the justice of God, Paul goes on in verse 6 to 10 and says that according to God's justice, those who were persecuting and afflicting them would themselves experience extreme persecution and affliction. Verse 7. The Thessalonian Christians would be given relief, it says in my translation. That is, the persecutions and afflictions would not last forever. They would cease. And those who were afflicting them would pay the price of eternal destruction. And Paul in these verses describes that retribution quite graphically, very graphic terms. You can just read it there. <laughs> Interesting to note, when will this happen? When is this going to happen? When their afflictions will cease and the people afflicting them will get what's coming to them. When is that going to happen? Well, the answer is quite clear. When Jesus comes back. <laughs> That's when it's going to happen. When Jesus comes back. When Jesus comes back, he'll come back with the mighty angels in flaming fire, verse 7 tells us. And he will deal out retribution to all the ungodly. Verse 8. And they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power eternally. It'll be a day of terror for the ungodly when Jesus comes back. But for believers, it'll be a day we'll marvel. We will see that the message of the gospel is true. And we are among his children. We are his favorite ones. As he takes us to be with him for eternity. So this is another thing to remember when we try to understand the persecution and afflictions in our lives. It gives opportunity for the justice of God to be revealed. 
first, our response of allowing it to cause our faith and love to grow shows that indeed we have been cleansed and welcomed into God's family. It shows God's righteous judgment is indeed correct. We are certainly children of His. And second, when Jesus returns, God's judgment will fall on all who are presently dishing out the persecution. So that will reveal the justice of God. There's, there's both a present and a future element here to the revelation of God's judgment. The present, it's our attitude toward the persecutions and sufferings that we have now. The future is God's judgment on the ungodly when Jesus returns. So when you seek to understand persecution and affliction, we need to take this into consideration. This is an opportunity for the justice of God to be revealed. Thirdly and finally, our prayers for each other should be consistent with these truths. Our prayers for each other should be consistent with these truths. Verse 11 and 12, here of 2 Thessalonians 1. Those two verses are Paul and Silas and Timothy's prayer for these believers in Thessalonica. And it's interesting how Paul states this. To this end we pray for you always. In other words, considering the truths that Paul had just put forward to these new Christians, considering what God is working toward, to this end we pray. This is what we pray for. And what is it that Paul and his companions were praying for? Let's read those verses, 11 and 12. To this end also we pray for you always. That our God will count you worthy of your calling. And fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. So that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you, and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Three things I see here that Paul prayed for in regards to the Thessalonians. First, he prayed that God would count them worthy of their calling. These Thessalonians were called by God out of their sinful past and into his family. They were called by God to grow in their faith and love as they were doing. They were called by God to be a light for him in that city of Thessalonica in spite of the persecutions and afflictions and bring others to Jesus. Paul prayed that they would be worthy of that calling. Second, Paul prays that God would fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. The idea in the original Greek is that God would instill in them a desire for goodness and then fulfill that desire in them carrying it out in action. That's the idea of the Greek language. That they would do the work of goodness with faith and power. And thirdly, Paul prays that the name of Jesus be glorified in them according to the grace that God had been given, given to them. He was praying that all that was true of these Thessalonian believers, their growing faith and love, their steadfastness in the midst of persecution and affliction, their desire for good, and the outworking of that desire, that it would all show to everyone the great work that God had done there in Thessalonica in these people, and that Jesus would be glorified because of it. 
That's what Paul prayed. Do you see anything absent from this prayer in Paul and Silas and Timothy? Do you see anything absent? Something that perhaps we would expect in this prayer, but it isn't there? There is no mention in this prayer of asking God to remove the persecution and affliction. Paul never prayed that. In fact, I don't see anywhere in the New Testament when persecutions against Christians abounded. I don't see anywhere in the New Testament where the, the apostles prayed that the persecutions would cease. There's lots of prayer that we would stand firm in the face of persecution and that we would continue to preach the gospel boldly in spite of persecution. You see that a number of times. But notably absent is that prayer that God would remove the persecution. I find that interesting. As we are seeing, persecutions and afflictions, bad and hurtful and stressful as they are, are things that God uses for his purposes. To cause growth in our faith and love, to reveal his justice, to glorify Jesus Christ, so, as we pray for each other in the midst of whatever our persecutions or afflictions may be, our prayers should be consistent with these truths. Pray for growth in faith and love. Pray that the calling of God on people will be fulfilled and realized. Pray that Jesus Christ will be glorified in how we react and remain faithful despite persecution and affliction. Our prayers should be consistent with these truths. So therefore we see from this passage the teachings that help us come to a better understanding of the persecutions and afflictions in our lives. They are, number one, persecution and affliction go together with growth. Number two, our persecutions and afflictions will give opportunity for the justice of God to be revealed. And number three, our prayers for each other should be consistent with these truths. Persecutions and afflictions will come into the life of every Christian in some form or another. When it does happen, it can be confusing because we somehow have the mistaken impression that if God is with us, he won't let anything bad happen to us. And so when something bad does happen to us, we're confused and have trouble putting it together. And the fact is that God will deliberately allow persecutions and afflictions to come into our lives. It's part of living in the sinful world around us. God is not going to wrap, wrap us in bubble wrap and not let any of this affect us. He has a purpose in it. He can use bad things to accomplish good in us. And we need to understand that. And when we pray for ourselves or when we pray for our fellow Christians, we need to pray in a manner consistent with these truths.
I'm not sure who I was preaching to this morning, but perhaps some of you do know. <laughs> but let's just take our time of silence as we do every Sunday morning. And we'll just, just for you to get alone with God, just in your own heart, and just open your eyes, open your hearts, open your minds to what may God may be saying to you personally this morning. I'll just give you a few moments to have alone with your God. In response to what God told us this morning, we'll sing a couple of songs, or three songs actually. Uh, in response to that, to God's word to us this morning, the first one, day by day, it's number 56 in your hymn books. day by day. Let's stand together as we sing these songs. Day by day and with each passing moment strength I find to meet my trials here trusting in my Father's wise bestowment I've no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure. Mingling charge that on himself he laid. 
as your days, your strength shall be in measure. This the pledge to me made. Help me then in every sift tribulation, so to trust your promises, O Lord, that I lose not faith's weak consolation. Offer me within your holy word. Help me, Lord, when toil and trouble meeting, ere to take as from a father's hand. One by one, the days, the moments fleeting, till I reach the promised land. Over to 359. 359. Jesus is, old, is Lord of all. Good old Gaither hymn. And I hope we can all sing this as a prayer to God and, 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 and mean it. <laughs> oh, my tomorrows, oh, my past, Jesus is Lord of all. I've quit my struggles, Contentment at last, Jesus is Lord of all. King of kings, Lord of lords, Jesus is Lord of all. All my possessions and all my life. Jesus is Lord of all. All of my conflicts, all my thoughts, Jesus is Lord of all. His love wins the battles I could not have fought. Jesus is Lord of all, King of kings, Lord of lords, Jesus is Lord of all, all my possessions and all my life, Jesus is Lord of all. All of my longings, all my dreams, Jesus is Lord of all. All of my failures, His power redeems, Jesus is Lord of all. Lord of all, all 
I hope that we can all walk away from here with that prayer in our own hearts and minds that, that uh, we're all on a journey and we all have a desire to keep on pressing on to higher ground, keep on growing, as they're talking about, keeping on growing and pressing on the upward way. I'm pressing on the upward way. New heights I'm gaining every day, still praying as I'm onward bound. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table land. on higher ground. My heart has no desire to stay where doubts arise and fears dismay. Though some may dwell where these abound, my prayer, my aim is higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table land, a higher plane than I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Verse 4. <laughs> I want to scale the utmost height and catch a gleam of glory bright. But still I'll pray till heaven I've found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's table land. A higher plane than I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. Thanks for your singing. You may be seated. 